Well, let me be the third one to welcome you here tonight. If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And if you'll make the effort to turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 7 beginning, uh, then you'll be in the the chapter where you need to be for the lesson tonight. This is where we're going to take our outline for the lesson this evening. Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, and we'll start reading in verse 7 here in just a second. I mean that when I say thank you for being here. You, you made a choice to be here tonight. You probably had to schedule it, probably had to rearrange your schedule for the week, make this a priority in order to be here. And maybe your response to that is, yes, but, but it's a choice I willingly make. Where else would I be when a gospel meeting is going on? Um, but I want it to be more than just uh, checking a box. I want it to be something that's helpful to you, beneficial to you. Convicting if necessary, but absolutely encouraging to you as you strive to walk and live as Christ has called you to. And I'm grateful that that's something that we don't have to do alone because we are truly better together. I want to begin tonight by asking you a couple of questions. By a show of hands, who here this evening considers themselves to be an introvert? An introvert. We have any introverts? Okay, you can put your hands down, and I assume because you raised your hand, you're not as big of an introvert as you say that you are, right? Who here tonight considers themselves to be an extrovert? Extrovert. Okay, so we got quite a few of those, evenly split as it normally is. Do you know you have something very powerful in common? Besides just the fact that you raised your hand and were willing to raise your hand tonight. What is it? Well, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 7 in order to find out. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 7. And what we find in verses 7 and 8 is that the wise man, the preacher, talks in those verses about vanity, as he often does in the book. Uh, Emptiness, striving after the wind, things that aren't really fulfilling, things that don't really last. And here he talks about the vanity of isolation, of being someone who is on their own, choosing to be alone. Read with me in verse 7. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. So that's on this earth, in this realm. There is one, he's looking and he's seeing, there is one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother, Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So we see here in these verses um, the vanity of isolation. It might appeal to our pride and lone wolf individualistic spirit as Americans, to say that we don't need anyone. But it rings hollow. Paul Earnhardt, in his brilliant little book uh, on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, All we have ever done since we were born is need somebody. Uh, Somebody to carry us about, feed us, and dress us. Someone to provide for us, protect us, teach us, love us, befriend us, encourage us, and share life with us. And overarching all the human help we have needed is the sustaining grace of a God who gives to all life and breath and all things. Acts chapter 17 and verse 25. Isolation 
even so-called successful isolation. And that's exactly what we see in verse 8. A man who achieved it all, who gained all of these riches, who was powerful and wealthy. Even that is vanity. It ends in emptiness. It is, I like the way the ESV says it, it is an unhappy business to be isolated in this way. Who wants to, to die all alone, clinging to wealth that you can't take with you anyway? But if we drop down just a few verses in the same chapter, we see the vanity of just the opposite. We see the vanity of popularity, beginning in verse 13. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13 He uses another word that he uses all the time in the book of Ecclesiastes, better, he says. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, this young man does, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verses 13 through 16 describe the rags to riches story of a wise youth who rises from prison of all places to become king over a kingdom in place of a foolish old man who won't listen to anybody anymore. But even this uh, Cinderella story ends with the fickle mob forgetting this young man as well, even in his wisdom. And it turns out the faceless, nameless crowd was never really his friend either. Um, What's your number? My number, not your telephone number, the other number. You know the one I'm talking about? My number, freshly updated today, is 1734. What's yours? 1734, that's how many friends I have on Facebook. 1,734. And if you would have told me in high school, Reagan, someday you're going to have 1,734 friends, I would have said, I don't know 1,734 people. And I'm not sure I want to have 1,734 friends. And yet when we look at that, how ironic is it? In these times, times of social distancing and quarantine and isolation, most of us had and have hundreds or even thousands of online friends, and you would think that we would be perfectly equipped to deal with isolation. Yet this shallow form of popularity has not and will not replace our need as human beings for real, personal in-person, deep friendships with other people. Shallow popularity is vanity. And so the preacher lays out his two extremes, the isolated introvert who has trouble seeing the necessity for friendships and establishing friendships, the popular extrovert who has the temptation of only having surface friendships with many people, but no deep connection with anyone. So back to our original question, what do these two seemingly polar opposites have in common? Each of these extremes struggle with having true, lasting, meaningful friendships. 
And thus, sandwiched in between these two extremes, the preacher tells us about what we should all be seeking. He tells us about the value, not the vanity, but the value of true friendship. So go back, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9, what we skipped over. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, let's read verses 9 through 12 together, if you would. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is a saying that comes from the Jewish Talmud. A man without companions is like the left hand without the right. And if that's true, then there are lots and lots and lots of people in this world who don't have their right hand. According to a staggering poll from May of 2021, 15% of men and 10% of women in the United States have no close friends. Zero. Nip. Nada. No close friends whatsoever. And that doesn't include immediate family relatives, but it does include spouses. So even if you include spouses, 15% of men and 10% of women have no close friends. And that's a significant increase since 1990, more than 30 years ago, if you can believe it, when only 3% of men and less than 2% of women had no close friends. In addition, people report having far less close friends overall. By a, by a wide margin, people have less friends and less close friends today than they did in 1990. Now, how does that relate to being a Christian? Well, I can't prove causation, but there is certainly a correlation between the decline in friendships and decline in church membership. In that same time period from 1990 to 2021, church membership dropped from 68% of Americans were a member of some Christian church down to just 47%. And maybe there being less believers and less committed believers, at least in terms of church attendance, has impacted our ability to be exposed to, to find, and to make friends. And don't get me wrong. You've probably heard preached, and I've preached it myself. It's certainly possible that Christianity can bring isolation from those who once were our friends. Becoming a Christian can, can mean that we lose friends. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember the first friend you lost because you wanted to do what was right and they didn't, and so you drifted apart? Uh, respond to that. Do you remember? Do you remember the first friend you lost that way? Junior high. Junior high was express, especially tough for me because there were these guys that I'd played ball with all my growing up life, and all of a sudden they were into things that I knew I couldn't be into if I wanted to try and serve God. And I lost friends over that. It's true. Being a Christian can make enemies. And it can make enemies even of friends. But being a Christian gives us more in terms of friendship than it takes from us. And this is one of many reasons why God gave us the brethren. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29, I'll, I'll quote it to you. 
Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Our brethren should be more than just our friends with mutual interests, those who wax and wane as our interests and our worldly positions change. No, God gave us true friendship. He gave us a family with unchanging mutual faith and foundation and hope. And in this way, hear me clearly, as a Christian, no matter how isolated we feel, our isolation should never, ever be total. There should always be those who are in our corner because we're all in the corner of God. And so when we think about our lives... Does that describe us? Do we have this true friendship that comes about because of our relationship with Jesus Christ? If we know and remember who our eternal friends really are, then we should answer yes to that question. I think personally of the wonderful people with whom I would never have had opportunity to be friends with in all likelihood unless we were both Christians. Our lives, because of where we are in our lives, just wouldn't overlap for any reason. Uh, I think about a couple of extreme examples of that. Um, I am dear, close friends with a 70-year-old sister in Christ, and I'm now in the same book club with her. Uh, We meet once a month, and in all likelihood, I never would have met her if we were not both Christians. I'm also friends with a 14-year-old sister in Christ who babysits our kids and our cat from time to time. And she shows me the sweet basketball shoes that she buys with the money we pay her for the babysitting. Um, and, And we've developed a close relationship, going to her game, seeing her play. In all likelihood, I never would have met her if we were not both Christians. I've become friends with them because we are part of the same congregation. We're part of the same family of God. We've already quoted from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, where the Godhead said in the garden after the creation of Adam, but before the creation of Eve, it is not good for man to be alone. But more than that, it's not really possible in any sort of fulfilling way. We are, by God's design, dependent and independent, interdependent creatures. Uh, In a 2002 study entitled, Very happy people. That sounds nice, doesn't it? I mean, don't you want to be a very happy person? Researchers sought to identify the defining characteristics of the top 10% of the happiest people in the United States. Think about that for just a second. What commonality would the happiest people in the United States have? What did they have in common? Were they all wealthy? No. Were they all beautiful? No. Did they all live in warm, beautiful places? No. Are they all physically fit and healthy? No. Are they all intelligent? Well, it turns out there was one and only one characteristic that distinguished the happiest 10% of people from everybody else. It was the strength and deepness of their social relationships. We need friends. We need community. And you know, so many of the issues that we have in today's world are caused, in my judgment, by people who are just looking for a place to belong. 
They're looking for their people. And God, in His infinite wisdom, He gave us our people. He created this institution that we call the church so that we might have these people in our lives. So what are we looking for in these kinds of friends? Well, this is where the preacher can really help us. In not so many words, the the preacher admonishes us to, to find a friend who will do four things with us and for us. Four things that I want to suggest to you this evening as I echo the words of the preacher. The first one is found there in verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. You need to be looking for and find friends who will work beside you. I think of Paul's friendship with Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They work beside each other in tent making in Acts chapter 18, but more importantly, they work beside each other in the gospel. Uh, In Romans chapter 16 in verses 3 and 4, he says this, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. He calls them his fellow workers and all the churches of the Gentiles. Those are all the churches where Paul worked. They knew these two people. And Paul says, my work was so much easier and better because I had these two faithful people in my life. Now, I want you to imagine that scenario. You've got these two people who are married to one another, and they must really like one another. Uh, I I was teaching a marriage class here a few months ago, and I I had people come up with couples from the Bible that they want to emulate. There's a lot of bad marriages in the Bible, but there's a few good ones too. And, And this is the couple that I chose. Think about it. Think about the intimacy that they have with one another. They're always mentioned together. Never are they mentioned by themselves. We see them working together. We see them worshiping together. We see them teaching together in the scriptures. They're inseparable. And that closeness and unity um, was not something that was intimidating to the Apostle Paul. He just jumped right in there with them. Do you think he was ever concerned about being the third wheel in in that relationship? Of course not. Find friends who can be fellow workers. Find friends who are not afraid to hop in the ditch and start digging with you. Find friends that you can call your fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Because we're going to have a greater reward and return on our labor if we find friends who will work beside us. But that's not all. Notice verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. Find friends. uh, True friends will make work better, easier, and more fulfilling with a greater return. I'm behind, aren't I? Fellow workers... All the churches of the Gentiles, y'all heard all that, right? Need to go over that again? Find friends who will stand beside you against yourself. Wow. What do I mean by that? Falling, as it's used in the Bible, is almost always a self-imposed problem. Someone who falls into the ditch is because they weren't paying attention or because there was something in the ditch shiny that they were going after. And sometimes our own worst enemy is ourselves. And when that's the case, we need someone to pull us up out of the pit, maybe that we ran headlong into ourselves. 
Woe to us if we're alone in that situation because we'll fall into the pit and not have anyone to help us out. Keeping your spot in Ecclesiastes 4, will you turn back to the book of Proverbs with me, please? Proverbs chapter 27. I'll remember to click it this time. Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27 and verse 5. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. There's some sharpening there. There is some uh, improvement that's taking place. And we talk a lot about this idea of somebody who will just accept me the way I am. That's not the kind of friend that I want. I want the kind of friend who, yes, will accept me, but he or she desires for me to get better. And uh, there's a lot of really bad information that's floating around out on the uh, internet uh, on social media especially, you know, we watch reels in bed, Stephanie and I, and you, you get these motivational speakers, and they usually have some spiritual spin on what they're saying, and they're like, you know, if somebody's not in your corner, if they don't have your back, you know, all these sorts of things, well, what does that look like? Um, are our friends only there for us and what we get out of it? Or are we there for them? That's a problem with that. But what does it look like for somebody to be in our corner and always have our back? You know what it might look like? It might look like, Reagan, you're an idiot. What in the world are you doing? You got to do better than that. In love, because they love me. But somebody who's willing to stand up to me against myself. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And yes, in the moment, it might hurt a little bit. But it hurts because they love me. And they want me to do better. What I don't need are the kisses of an enemy. Those deceitful kisses that, that tell me I'm great and everything's wonderful when that's not really the case. I need someone in my life who will tell me the way it really is in love, in gentleness, their speech seasoned with salt and all of those things. But I need to appreciate the friend who will tell me what I need to hear, not just what I want to hear. Do you have friends like that? You need them. We all need them in our lives. Someone who will stand beside us against ourselves. But also we need someone who will stand beside us against our circumstances and the things that we're going through. Go back to Ecclesiastes 4, if you would. Notice verse 11. Again, two are better than one. That's why he's saying again. All of that is two are better than one. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone. We could have said, lie beside you against the harsh elements of life. That's what we need. Somebody who's beside us when the circumstances are difficult, when things around us are tough, and the image is being out in the elements on a cold night. And you need somebody who's willing to, to lay beside you in those situations. Uh, I was talking tonight about, about camps and Florida college camps, going to camp. I grew up out in West Texas, and so I had choices. I could go to Texas camp, which is about six and a half hours away. I went there for a year, and it was 105 every day, no air conditioning. There were wasps everywhere. It was a great experience. 
And then I had the opportunity the next year to go to Colorado up in Pagosa Springs, Wolf Creek Pass. It was 75 degrees every day. The, the food was all homemade. Uh, we were up in the mountains everywhere. Um, and shockingly, I chose Colorado. Uh, and so I would go up there every summer. And it was great because usually it was the week right before football two-a-days started. And so it was this great respite before, you know, near-death experiences. Uh, and one year, um, I was either a junior or a senior that year. Uh, uh, the, the, the boys in the senior cabin, the oldest boys, we decided we were going to camp out one night. We all brought our seeping bags, you know, and we we're just going to camp out under the stars. And it was an incredible experience. We went out into the woods, hiked out before it got dark. We got our camp set up. We sang some songs. We laid in these sleeping bags and we looked up at the stars like I had never seen them before. It was awesome until about two in the morning. And about two in the morning, the temperature dipped down into the mid to low 30s. And there was a buddy of mine who was in the sleeping bag next to me. And he was about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, a big guy. And so I'm sitting there and I'm shivering. And I look over and I see that he's awake. And I say words that I never thought would come out of my mouth. I said, is there any room in that sleeping bag for me? And he said in response... I thought you would never ask. <laughs> and you know what? We kept warm the rest of that night. Uh, and if you had told us as we were hiking out there, you're going to end up in a sleeping bag with your buddy before the night is over, we'd say, no, never, not in a hundred years. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so too in our lives. Who is the person that is going to stand beside us when the going gets tough. When the things in our lives are not all perfect and rosy. When the circumstances maybe even were caused by our own foolishness, our own sin, our own shortcomings. But instead of abandoning us, a true friend will come to us with a spirit of meekness seeking to restore us, seeking to build us up, seeking to weep with those who weep. The circumstances of life remind us how much we need people. Have you noticed uh, how people say literally all the time about things that aren't really literal? Have you noticed that? Drives me nuts, you know? It's like, I literally can't even. Literally? You literally can't even do this? To the point that the phrase literally has lost some of its punch. Well, let me say, this is literally the opposite of a fair weather friend, as it's described here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The weather is cold, the weather is harsh, but they stick with you. They get in the sleeping bag with you. And it is your circumstances that you are fighting together. Who will stand beside you when things are difficult for you? Who will weep with you? Who will come to the funeral? Who will step up in times of crisis to get things done when you're not sure how they're going to be accomplished? Those are the kinds of friends that we need. And those are the kinds of friends that we need to be to others. I want you to look back in Proverbs again. This time Proverbs chapter 17. And verse 17. Proverbs 17 and 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, for these very times. The saying goes that hard times will reveal true friends. 
But so too do good times. Even more difficult for some, sometimes, are when the circumstances are good for you. Who's the person will be, that will be happy for you when you're doing well and they're not? Who is the person who will rejoice when you rejoice? Find a friend who is more happy for your success than you are, who is rooting for you to succeed in all things, who wants you to be successful, even if that means that you are more successful than them. And again, the way you do that is by being that kind of friend to others. Um, I was texting with another preacher and, uh, you know, preachers, we rib each other and those sorts of things. And, you know, the old phrase, uh, you know, you're a good guy. I don't care what so-and-so says about you. And, you know, this preacher I was texting with, he said that. Um, And it's just playful ribbing. But the person he said that about um, is probably the person who's been my biggest cheerleader outside of my mom and dad. Uh, and my wife, my biggest cheerleader in my life. And, and I told him that. I said, well, that may be true, but not with this guy. Because all he wants is for me to be successful. And even if I were more successful than him, he would rejoice. He would rejoice for me, and he'd rejoice for the kingdom of God. That's the kind of friend we need to be. Proverbs 18, just maybe a page over. Proverbs 18 and verse 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is one who shows genuine empathy for others. In times of pain or happiness, that's the closest friend. They are not fair weather friends. They are there for you no matter the circumstances. And we'll talk more about empathy on Wednesday night. The next thing that we see uh, back there in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and let's read verse 12. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. So we need somebody who will stand beside us against ourselves, against our circumstances, but also someone who will stand beside us against others who are seeking to harm us. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24 in the ESV. That's the verse we just read. But in the ESV it says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, All might desert you in time of trouble. That's what happened with Jesus, even with his closest friends. But not the friend who is closer than a brother. They will defend you instead of slandering your name. They will stand up beside you and for you Um, no matter what. Uh, Even if you're not able to fight for yourself, they will fight for you. Uh, There are lots of examples that we could could use. I've got some examples written down here from, from movies and from my own life, but I think maybe the best example, I was thinking about this earlier today. What's the best illustration of this? I think it might have been Jonathan with David. Jonathan had every reason to be jealous of David. Jonathan was the one who, from a physical standpoint, was the one who rightly should have been king. His dad, Saul, was out to get David all the time. And yet all Jonathan ever was was helpful and supportive. He stood up for David against his own father. He was always there for him. And in our society where we're so obsessed with romantic love, maybe we need to be reminded about the power of friendship. 
the power of familial love. And maybe that uh, we can say, even as David did, that there is a kind of love, a different kind of love that, that even exceeds in some ways, because it's different, the love of women, as he said, of his love for Jonathan. Can we be friends like that? Do you want a friend like that? What a blessing when we have it. We all need people in our lives who will go to battle with us. Maybe not against kings, but against sin and the devil. People who will fight with us and for us. We need friends like that. Friends who remind us that the true enemy is not one another. The true enemy is the devil and whatever problem that he has placed before us. Well, my question is, that sounds like a pretty awesome friend. Where do we find such friends? God knew all of this. He knows how much we need friendship and fellowship and community because He created us. So what did He do in His infinite wisdom? He provided relationships for us from the very beginning. Uh, these verses talk a lot about two. Two are better than one and so on and so forth. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, as we quoted a moment ago, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so God made a woman, and not just any woman, a wife. And so in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23, Adam says this. And Adam said, this at last. I've seen everything else that God has created. And this at last is the one I've been looking for. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Do you see on the PowerPoint how the arrangement of uh, this verse in 23 is different than what we see in verse 24? That's because this is poetry. Adam burst out in song when he saw the woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two become one. And this is the first place that I would suggest that we can find such a friend. We can find such a friend in a faithful spouse. What are you looking for in a spouse? What are you looking for in a marriage? I like the goal that Tim Keller identifies in, in his great book on marriage, deep character change through deep friendship as one of the goals that he lays out for a godly marriage. I want a friend who will do these four things. Work beside me, stand beside me against myself, stand beside me against circumstances, stand beside me against others seeking to do harm. And if I have a friend like that, that friend is going to make me better. That's the kind of friend that I want in my spouse. Look, if you would, in Proverbs again. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Does that mean any wife? You know, any woman, just, just find somebody to marry and you're going to find a good thing. Here's a verse that some seem to take too literally. The wise man isn't saying any wife or any husband. That would be easy enough to just find someone who's willing to marry us. But a wife or husband like the one described in Proverbs 31, a virtuous, a worthy wife in verse 10. Her, her worth is far above rubies. And that begins not with how they look, obviously, or even how compatible you are, the sparks that fly. 
But it begins with their faith and commitment to Christ. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Proverbs 31 and verse 30 says. Uh, Many have made the connection to the the threefold cord of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've not read that yet, so go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. The last thing that the wise man says is that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Some people have made the connection, well, the threefold cord is you've got the husband, you've got the wife, and what's the third thing? It's God, right? And so if God joins them together, it's not quickly broken. Um, that's a great application to that verse. I'm not certain that's exactly what Solomon had in mind, but it's a wonderful application. Whether that's what he intended or not, the deepest and most satisfying friendships in marriage come when both are focused on the same thing, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Peter calls it, this is my favorite phrase for marriage in all the Bible, that we are fellow heirs, heirs together of the grace of life in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. And that's something that Peter experienced himself. He was talking from experience there. Young people, um, can I talk to you for just a second? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for giving me permission to do that. I appreciate that. I do not have the words to impress upon you strongly enough how important this is. This is one of the most important decisions that you can make. And let me emphasize something to you about the bar you're trying to achieve here. It's not, well, I need to marry someone so I can remain faithful. That's not it. It's about the good that you can accomplish in the kingdom of God if you have a fellow heir of the grace of life beside you. I do not believe that it is sinful for you to marry someone who is not a Christian, but it is unwise. And even if you say to yourself, well, I'm going to make it to heaven either way, and even if that's true, what are you robbing from God's kingdom if you don't choose someone who is going to help you be the very best Christian that you can be? Seek out someone with a good and honest heart to marry. Someone who loves God more than they love you. Someone who brings out the spiritual in you instead of the carnal. Someone who is attracted to the spiritual side of you most of all, not the carnal. And that's what you want to be your lifelong companion and friend, or any friend, but certainly when you think about your spouse. Beware of someone who isn't a committed believer. Don't make it a box to check. Well, they're a Christian. You know, they go to the right kind of church. Make sure it is someone who is truly committed to the Lord. And we need to beware of anyone who isn't a committed believer. Not that we can't be their friend. We should be their friend. How else can we have influence on them? But we need to remember that their goals are different because their purpose and their identity is different if they are outside of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, You've probably heard this one before, but maybe it is not exactly what you've heard before. I don't know. Let's see. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 32. Paul says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? 
If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were some in Corinth who were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who were those people? Uh, well, it was those pagan people worshiping in temples, right? No, it was Christians, those who called themselves Christians, who were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were coming in and they were teaching this false doctrine. And, and Paul says there are ramifications to this. If that's true, if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, let's throw the whole thing out and eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's his conclusion, not mine, his. And it's in that context that he says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now we apply this verse to all sorts of situations in regard to peer pressure and our friendships. And a lot of times we apply it rightly, we apply it to things like sexual misconduct or drinking and drugs and, and those sorts of things. And all of those applications are true. All of those applications are fair from the passage. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about those who are teaching false doctrine those who believe and practice false doctrine. And he says, you need to be really careful because it can corrupt your understanding of God and His Word and what Christianity is all about. Paul says, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the resurrection, those are big issues of faith that have an impact on our actions and if the dead do not rise, Paul says, then we would live totally differently. And people who believe stuff like that are going to live totally different than God would have them to live. And if you think that someone's belief system or faith or lack thereof has no impact on your friendship and their influence on you because they're a good person or because they claim to be a Christian, you're deceiving yourself. That's what Paul says. Do not be deceived. And the people he was talking about here said that they were Christians. What we believe impacts strongly the way we live and the way we act. And so too with the beliefs of those around us. Their beliefs impact strongly the way we live and the way we act. And this is true, not just of our closest friendship and marriage, but in all of our friendships. With whom are we the closest? Who is influencing us? Is it someone who is always going to bring their Bible to the conversation if it's about spiritual things? Is it someone who's going to seek the truth and pursue it? Or is it someone who's more concerned about their own opinions and they don't really care about God that much, whatever they call themselves, Christian or not? And that's why we find friends like this. Like, like what is described by Solomon, with our faithful brethren. God didn't just create marriage, He created the church to fulfill this need. And this is where our very best friends should be found. And then there is this unexpected twist at the end. Two, 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 he says. Two are better than one. Two are going to be kept warm. Two is going to raise you up out of the ditch. Until finally, in the very last line, all of a sudden, it's three. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. And so my final admonition to you, the Christians here, anybody who might be joining us online is this. Where do we find such friends? It's in the faithful people of God. But it's also maybe by adding another friend. If you have the most important thing in common, what is that? 
That's God. That's Jesus Christ. That's your faith. You will find someone who will do these four things for you. And I'm not asking you to abandon the friends you have, but what I'm asking you to do is to seek to grow new friendships among God's people. Get to know someone who is outside of your group. Get to know someone who is outside of your age, outside of your family. Maybe go on a double date with a Christian couple that you've not been out with before. Invite a family you don't know very well over for supper. Uh, Go play Ultimate Frisbee or share a book recommendation. Maybe reconnect with that old friend that you've grown apart from in terms of relationship, but not in faith. And this kind of friendship only multiplies our common strength. If a threefold cord is not quickly broken, what about a fourfold or fivefold or twelvefold? Let us expand our circle of Christian friends. It's not going to d- decrease our, only, our other friendships, it's only going to increase them. Because this is a friendship that is closer than any other, closer even than family. I don't care if you're an extrovert, if you're an introvert. What I care about is whether or not you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, man, I want to be your friend. If you're not a Christian, I want to be your friend. But I want you to know that there's always going to be a barrier between us. Because the most important thing in my life is my faith. And I hope so badly that we can share that together because it is the most important thing to me. And God calls it to be the most important thing of all who would follow after Him. Do you desire to follow after Him tonight? Well, you can find some true friends if you're willing to do that. You can find the place where you belong that God has created for you among the people of God. And if we can encourage you and help you in doing that even this evening, won't you come now as together we stand and sing.